As always, it's good to be back. I noticed a number of new faces, and I noticed a few faces missing. To those who are new and I have not met you, um, please, before you leave today, say hi. If I have not greeted you yet in my rounds, I appreciate this assembly providing young men to go out and speak at other assemblies. It's much needed and much appreciated and their ministry has been of great encouragement. So it's not surprising. Some people ask if I have a new Bible, the answer is no. If you ask me why my pages sound like that, I will tell you privately. If you turn to John 13, I'd like to look at the Lord's farewell instructions to his disciples. This is called, sometimes called the upper room ministry. It's sometimes called the ministry of the Last Supper. I'm going to start reading at verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover... When Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own, which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. And supper being ended, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he was come from God and went to God, he rises from the supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poureth water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with where, wherewith he was girded. Then cometh he to Simon Peter, and Peter saith unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. Peter saith unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Simon Peter saith unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said, saith to him, He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit, and ye are clean, but not all. For he knew who would betray him, therefore said, ye are not all clean. So after he had washed their feet and had taken his garments and was sat down again, he said unto them, know ye what I have done to you. Ye call me master and Lord, ye say well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I send to you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If ye know these things, happy are ye if ye do them. And the Lord will add a blessing to the reading of his word. Chapter 12 closes with the end of Jesus' public ministry. He closes that with an invitation to believe on him as a Messiah, as the one sent from the Father. 
But as we know, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. And so now he's going to draw those aside who had received them to give them final instructions. And as we go through this upper room ministry, or this last ministry, or this last teaching to his disciples, we're going to find out that it actually takes place in two distinct locations. One's inside the upper room. And in the upper room, we have that covered in the 13th and 14th chapter. And then outside in the 15th and 16th chapter on the way to Gethsemane. The inside lesson is regarding Christian conduct. And it's particularly Christian conduct within the Christian community. And the outside is regarding conduct before the world. The lessons are easy to understand. The difficulty is carrying out the lessons. They're easier for us to understand with 2020 hindsight as we look back. It was a little more difficult for the disciples to fully understand what the Lord was doing and what he was teaching. And he teaches through parables. He teaches through illustrations. And he teaches through word. As we read the disciples' writings later, it is very clear, I believe, that they got the message. I'm not sure we always get the message. The lessons are a call to holiness. We just had a song about holiness. The lessons are a call to holiness, and what he's going to teach is practical holiness. The good news is that Christ does not only call us to live a Christ-like life, he first gives us a gift of divine life so that we are then empowered to live a Christ-like life. People teach me things as an illustration. Someone could try to teach me how to sing, but as some would attest to, that wouldn't help my singing much. Well, Christ doesn't teach you how to be holy and then leave you powerless to actually be holy. 2 Peter 3 and 4, and I think Peter, 2 Peter 1, 3 and 4, I think Peter got that from this message. We're going to look into that a little bit more tonight. So 2 Peter 2, verse 1, uh, 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3 says this, According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that has called us to the glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceedingly great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. The ultimate lesson is that every step forward in our development is achieved not not by what we do for Christ, but what Christ does for us. Not an easy lesson to learn. We're told three times in the New Testament, one time in the Old Testament, that the just shall live by faith. And Paul illustrates that by saying, it is through faith that I live. It's not through our efforts, it's not through what we do, but it's through faith in Jesus Christ. So let's look at this passage. Verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was coming and that he should be de- depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own, which were in the world, he loved them unto the own. 
He gathered his disciples one last time because he had desired to eat the Last Supper with them, or what we know, we call the Last Supper, but was really the Passover. If you've never been to a cedar, you've never seen the Passover acted out, it's always something worthy to do. Then understanding of the Passover, I think, will help with the understanding of this passage particularly. Now notice what it says, when Jesus knew that his hour was come. The term is hour occurs ten times in John. Ten times in John. Five times we read that his hour has not come, but... Then in the 12th chapter, in the 23rd verse, he now speaks about the fact that his hour has come. Our Lord was very distinctly aware of his timetable. He was aware of his purpose for coming. He was aware of his timetable for coming. And he knew exactly when, according to the divine will and purpose, it was his hour. That's one of the things that always amazes me that he was aware of everything that was set before him. We're told 12, five times that his hour had come in 1223 and 1227 and 131, 1632 and 171. And that hour is marked as a time that the eternal council comes together at one point because we looked Eternity past, look forward to that point. And eternity future looks back on that particular hour. It's the pinnacle, if you would, of God's plan because it was the way he was to redeem man. Notice what it says next, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father. He was going to his Father. Christ going to his father was an integral part of the plan. We could not be made a partaker of the divine nature until Christ went to his father. As, we, as you go through the upper room teaching, the Lord makes it very clear that his departure is essential to this coming of the Holy Spirit. And without the Holy Spirit, we would be powerless to live holy lives. So his plan was to go to the father. His plan was then to send the Holy Spirit back for us. And then notice what it says at the end, that having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. In some translations, it's translated unto the uttermost. The word needs to be applied in two ways, if you would. One is in time, to the very end, and one of them is in degree, in the greatest intensity. His love was both finished as he could say at the cross, it is finished, but it was also to the end in intensity, there was no more that he could do in order to accomplish our salvation. Look at verse two, having supper being ended, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son to betray him. Some people have wondered at the plan that these 12 individuals, one who would betray him, are gathered together in this upper room Later on in this same chapter, he's going to address Judas. So I don't want to take a lot of time on that because that's another message. But he's aware of each of their failings. He's aware of each of their weaknesses. And he's aware that sitting at his table as his friend is someone 
who has his betrayal in mind, his betrayal being planned. And so you wonder what's going through Judah's mind as he sits at this table knowing what he was planning. But what we're told is the Lord was aware of it. The Lord was aware of it. Notice verse 3. As weak as they were, he still was going to tell them about living holy lives. As I look at Peter and I look at some of the disciples and some of the ways they failed, especially there during this crucial time of the crucifixion, and I look at myself and I go, I'm as weak or weaker than they are, and yet he has a plan for me, and yet he's provided for me. And then verse 3, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, John would want us to know two things that Jesus was aware of. First, the Father had given all things into his hands, that God had given him supreme and ultimate power. Nothing was beyond his control. Here sits a man who controlled it all. Very God and very man. Earlier, Jesus had made a statement to that effect. John 10 and 18 says this, No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. There's never been a man who's been in control of his death. But there was a man, Jesus Christ, who was in control of his death. And he knew exactly what lay before him. And that he had come from God and he went to God. John makes that clear. He's the only one who had descended from the Father. We talked a little bit about that in the first meeting earlier, is that it was in his flesh that the veil was rent. And I don't know if you've thought about that a lot, but if you read the end of the 12th chapter, you'll see that the very veil which separated man from God that separation was done away with in the person of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ came, and John says in the first chapter that we beheld his glory as the, only, as the glory of the only begotten of the Father, that he dwelt among us, that God came, that the Israelites who once a year could send the high priest into the presence of God had the presence of God among them and missed it had the glory of God dwelling in their very presence, and they missed it. He came from the Father to reveal the Father to us, the very heart of God, and they missed it. And it's important that we don't miss it. It's important that, miss, that we don't miss it, that this one the, that the Father sent to reveal his character and who he is to us, because he was very God himself, that he came from the Father, and the plan was he was going back to the Father, and the Lord Jesus fully, fully knows that. It was necessary for Christ to die. It was necessary for Christ to die in order for us to have a part in eternity. 
He was aware of that. It was necessary for him to go back to the Father for us to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. It was necessary for the process to be completed in us that he returned to the Father. And so he tells us that he's going to the Father. Notice the fourth verse. He rises from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. As we read, we know Peter's reaction. But I wonder what the rest of the disciples were thinking at that point. The very disciples who had been arguing who was going to be greater in the coming kingdom. Who was going to sit at his first hand, his right hand side? Who was going to sit at his left hand side? Who was going to be the highest in the kingdom? And the one who they recognize as God gets up from the table and girds himself like a servant. And girds himself like a servant. What was the oppression left on their mind as he does this? As we read in Luke, that was a common task of usually a servant. And in Luke 7, the Lord's at the Pharisee's house, and the woman who's a sinner comes in and washes his feet with her tears in her hair and anoints his feet with oil. And he turns to the master of the house who had invited them and said, you provided me no one to wash my feet. You, you didn't even provide water for me to wash my own feet. A typical task of a rich person would be have his servant wash their feet. They didn't even afford the Lord that custom. Because you know they wore sandals. And they walked on dusty roads. And they would get to where they were going. And as they reclined at the table, since they didn't use chairs, you didn't want your dirty feet near someone else. And they would wash their feet. And yet no one had done that for this supper. And the Lord steps up and he, he's going to instruct his disciples on a great lesson of humility. He's going to instruct his disciples on a great lesson in holiness. And he's going to show them that truly to be holy, a servant's attitude and a servant's heart must grip you. There is no place for self-ambition. There's no place for self. And he's going to demonstrate that. Christ-likeness is not a theological doctrine. It involves an attitude of heart and mind. It's easy to read it on the pages. Sometimes it's harder to put it into action. And what he's telling them, there is no task that's below a servant. I want you to stop just a moment and just think about this. One of the great things I've been thinking about the last few years, and I really struggle with this to tell you the truth, is that Jesus Christ came to reveal God to me and Jesus Christ was humble. Turn over to Philippians 2, if you would. It's a great passage on the humility of God. 
of the humility of Jesus Christ. And as, and, I, and, and as I want you to think about this, as Paul's writing this, I can't help but wonder if he had this very incident during the Last Supper on his mind, that Peter or someone had related it to him, and he's thinking of this as he writes these very words in Philippians 2. In verse 5, and he says this, Let this mind be in, be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the very form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon himself the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of man. And here at this Last Supper, he's taken on the position of a servant to his very disciples. But that's simply an illustration of the role that he took when he came down from heaven to take on. Paul tells us the role of a servant. And being found in the fashion of the man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, and of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He came to reveal the Father to us, and he revealed to us a humble man. Sometimes we sing the song, that wondrous thy humiliation to accomplish our salvation. I want you to think about that. Is that an attribute of God that Jesus Christ revealed to us when he came to earth? There's four, there, in verse 3 and 4, we have five statements reminding us of his deity, knowing all things were placed in his hands, divine knowledge and power, his dignity came from God, his destiny went to God, his humanity laid aside the garments, and his, his humility, he girded himself. Tremendous thought about that. Let's look at the verse 5. And after that, he poured water into the basin, began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. And we know Peter's reaction. We don't know what the other disciples thought. To see their Lord kneeling before them, washing their feet. It's a dramatic scene. I don't know that I always fully comprehend it or understand it. Now... This is called a teaser. We're going to cover 6 through 11 tonight. So we're going to jump over 6 through 11 and go down to verse 12. And if you come back tonight, I promise to cover 6 through 11. If you don't come back tonight, you'll have to hear it on a tape or at some other method of, of transmission. Verse 12, so after he had washed their feet and had taken his garments and was set down again, he said unto them, Know you what I have done to you? He showed them an action parable about humility. And he wants them to get the lesson. So he asked the question. You know, I sometimes fail to ask the question, do you understand what I've demonstrated to you? Do you understand? I know with my kids I failed on that miserably in that department. Know you what I've done to you? Do you understand? Do you grasp it? And then notice what he's going to say. 
They knew they had washed their feet. But did they know the deeper meaning? Did they know the deeper meaning? Let's look at verse 13. You call me master and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. One of the things, I guess, that concerns me in this day and age is that some of our hymns and praise songs tend to believe because I ascribe to Jesus who he is, that that's what's true. And what he wants his disciples to know is that you call me master and Lord. He's not master and Lord because they call him master and Lord. (laughs) He wants to tell them, for so am I. For so I, I am. And notice he used that key phrase, I am. He's master and Lord because that's who he is. Not because we believe he is. Now, it's always good to ascend to the truth and to acknowledge what the truth is. But that's not why he is master and Lord. He's master and Lord because that's who he is. They just allowed their master and Lord to wash their feet. And then verse 14. If I then, your Lord and master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. And here's where the rubber meets the road. If the Lord of this universe, the very one who created this universe, the one who holds all things together, the one and only one who was worthy to bear our sins on the cross, could kneel before them and wash their feet, they had no excuse not to wash one another's feet. You notice that. He tells them they ought to do that. It's an attitude of heart that he's communicating to them. And then verse 15, he's going to really explain it to them. For a high have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. He's given us example that we should do to each other what he did to his disciples. And so the thought crosses my mind, if I truly desire to be a servant of God, and I truly want to be like Jesus Christ, not just with my lips, but actually in my actions, how is it that we wash one another's feet? Now, one thing I'm happy is that he chose a menial task as his illustration. I'll go back to my comments earlier. If he had made singing praises to him on key as the task that we had to do in order to accomplish this, I would fail miserably, and I wouldn't be able to do the task. But he sets a task that the lowest servant could do, and he assumed that spot as the lowest servant, And he did it. And so my question becomes, what and how do I wash another person's feet? I'll suggest a few to you. You'll have to think of your own, though, because I can't tell you what works for you. But I will tell you, when I see a task that would make me uncomfortable, or if I see a task that my first thought is, well, that's 
really below my dignity or that's really below me, that immediately pops into my mind that that would be a foot washing task because that's exactly what the Lord is speaking about today. I serve in a camp that the Buena Park Christian Fellowship puts on up at Lawson, Lassen. I say that wrong every time, so it's Lassen. And one of the tasks that comes up there is that the bus driver drives from Buena Park up there, leaves everyone, then he goes down to Reading and takes the bus back to Oakland. He comes back at the end of the week on Thursday morning, and he arrives in Reading at 6 a.m. Thursday morning, and Reading's about an hour from the camp. So someone at camp has to wake up at 5 o'clock and drive down, to Lassen, or drive down to Reading and pick him up and bring him back to the camp at Lassen. And it's mentioned that there's a need to do that, and everybody looks around the room at each other because no one's really comfortable getting up at 5 a.m. and driving for two hours. And I having studied this passage, it popped into my mind that when everyone looks around the room and everybody's going, who's going to do it, that that's an opportunity to do foot washing. That's an opportunity to encourage others by saying, that's a task I will do. And the first comment is usually, are you sure? Like, we can find someone else to do it. No, no. someone needs to do it, and I'm willing because I see it as a task that no one really wants to do. I've been to assemblies at conference time and I see one individual or maybe two individuals emptying the trash and cleaning up and doing tasks that others don't wanna do. And nothing's worse than if you've done that task of emptying trash or cleaning up after people, nothing's worse then you pull the bag out of the trash can, drape the new bag over, and you carry the bag out. And when you come back with the new dry bag still draped over the trash can, people have been throwing trash into the container without the bag. And now you've got to get into the container and pull that trash and put it in the bag before you put the new bag in. And yet you see people standing around watching that individual do that. And they couldn't even put the bag in while he was gone. Well, guess what? I don't know why they're able to watch others do it. But here all these disciples were around watching and no one thought that they should take on the task to wash feet. And here the Lord Jesus comes along and he girds himself and kneels before them and washes their feet. And so the question then becomes, what task is out of my comfort zone? What tasks do I expect others to do for me? To the point sometimes it's almost uncomfortable to be served. And yet you have to be gracious and let others encourage you by serving. I'm not gonna tell you what you should do I'm going to tell you what task would be a foot-washing task for you. But I would encourage you to consider tasks that might be below your dignity. I would consider you to consider tasks that are out of your comfort zone. I'll tell you, visitation is not in my comfort zone. I tend to be the one who opens the scripture and say, while your hope's in the Lord, this is going to be temporary. You're going to have all eternity to look forward to. 
And the Lord's had to really train me on compassion a lot. And yet it's an important task to go and visit people who need comforted. And it's an important task to show compassion. I'll leave it there. Verse 16. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If the Lord could humble himself, can I also humble myself? There are times, and I'll tell you, it's an everyday, almost hour by hour, battle about my own importance and what's in, what, what a task is below me and what task I should be doing and what. And yet, I'm reminded again and again that the Lord's example, that there is no task that's below me. There's no task that I shouldn't be willing to be doing. 2 Timothy 2.24 is a verse that I have on my business cards or have on my, my, my cards. And it says this, And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach patience, in meekness instructing those that oppose themselves if God preadventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his own will. You know, the Lord taught his disciples, don't be like the Gentiles. It's not about having dominion over people. Peter got that when he writes to the elders in 1 Peter 5. He tells them it's not about having dominion. It's not about power structure. It's not about who can rule over who. It's about serving one another. It's about humility. It's about patience. Someone asked me what my definition of meekness was. I tell you, my definition of meekness is realizing that God's in control and I don't have to make it happen in my own will and in my own power. And that I can be patient and allow God to work. As I'll tell you what, when God works, as his disciples realize, as you read the first few chapters of Acts, great things happen and God's glorified. When man works, terrible things happen and God doesn't get the glory. I've worked one church in particular for, for a number of years, and I will tell you, patience patience, patience, and I've seen God glorified because man did not work. But it meant not exercising dominion, not telling people what they had to do, preaching the word and letting God change hearts so when hearts were changed, God was glorified. Let's close this. If you know these things, happy are ye if you do them, we talk a lot about the Beatitudes and what it means to be blessed or happy. If you really want to be happy, it's not about having dominion. It's not about the power structure. It's not about being the greatest. 
If you really want to be happy, it's finding areas of service and serving the saints. And those who truly serve the saints, the blessing is that they will be happy. We live in a day and age that encouraging each other by acts of humility and love is often lacking. And yet the writer to the Hebrews encouraged us to do that very thing when in Hebrews 10.24 he wrote, and let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works. You want to provoke someone to love and good works is by doing those tasks which are foot washing among the saints. Do we need to pray for the food? All right, then we will pray for the food here. If you can stay for lunch, please do so as we celebrate the graduates. Father, we thank you that you sent your son to reveal your very heart to us. And, and Father, we would readily admit that we fail to be Christ-like in a number of areas in our lives. And yet, Father, just as this, your son instructed his disciples both with this illustration of foot washing and his words, Father, we would be those who would not be hearers only, but also be doers of the word of God. And so, Father, we would ask that you would speak to our hearts about those areas that we can serve one another and provoke to love and good works. The areas that we can encourage one another by making those sacrifices, Father, that a servant would make. And that, Father, we would look to be Christ-like in all areas of our lives. We thank you that there's a blessing that goes along with this promise of service. And we look forward, Father, to being able to encourage each other to love and good works. We thank you for your son. We thank you that he became a servant and humbled himself even to the death on the cross. That the very master and Lord of this universe would come and take my place at Calvary and take my sins upon him, self there on the tree, that he would shed his blood for the forgiveness of my sins. And then, Father, we thank you that it was buried and raised again on the third day. And that his return to heaven meant that the Holy Spirit would come and empower us to give us that power that we must have in order to live Christ-like lives. So, Father, we would not live it in our own strength, but we would depend on the Spirit to empower us to live like Christ. Oh, Father, may we understand the lesson that he taught his disciples and apply it to ourselves. We do so as we would move into the next room to celebrate this graduation, to eat the feast that has been provided. Father, we do so with thankful hearts. We thank those who have prepared it. We thank those who have provided the funds. And then, Father, we would ask that the time that we fellowship together would be sweet to your ears. We give you thanks again. In the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, amen.